Hi, welcome to More Life, the Reentry Podcast, a podcast about offender reentry reform and advocacy. I'm your host, Vinkivia Garner. Thank you for joining me today. On today's episode, we are going to be talking about financial obligations and how they impede or impact reentry outcomes. We have a guest with us that has expertise in this area, so I really think he will be able to convey a lot of things to the audience of and give us a better understanding of financial obligations or just criminal justice debt in general. Um, so with me today is Dr. Nathan Link. Dr. Link is a criminologist, assistant professor, and director of the graduate program in the Department of Sociology, Anthropology, and Criminal Justice. Um, he is also affiliated with the Health Science Center and the graduate program in Prevention Science. Um, given his background in social work, he aims to create knowledge that can improve both public policy and the lives of those in contact with the justice system. His research primarily is related to um, issues and corrections and sentencing, including financial sanctions and debt, debt, prisoner reentry and desistance from crime, mental and physical health, and crime and recidivism control strategies. He has been supported with grants from the National Institute of Justice, um, Arnold Ventures, and the Drug Enforcement and Policy Center at Mortise College of Law. So Dr. Link has an extensive history of, of work in this area. So I think he will, like I said, be really able to convey to us not only like what are the challenges with death, but the importance um, and even providing us with some recommendations and solutions of how we can better assist in this area. So without further ado, um, Dr. Link, we just want to thank you for coming on. And is there anything else that you feel like you would like to add um, that I didn't hit or anything? Uh, no, thank you so much, Vancivia, for that wonderful introduction, and uh, thanks for inviting me on your podcast. Um, I guess the only other detail I could add about my bio is, like you, I really sort of value many different forms of scholarship and ways to impact society. So even myself, I like to engage in a certain degree of what we call public criminology, which means you know talking to audiences beyond the academy trying to get um, policies and practices improved in the real world, trying to have an impact, um, and even advocating for those things. Um, so uh, what you're doing here with this podcast is, is something that I can totally get behind. And so uh, I'm glad to be here. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, scholarship is very important to me as well. And I definitely try to use my podcast as a way um, to, like you said, advocate and um you know, get the research out there that exists and um, let people know what the research is and how we could um, change things or just do things a little differently to better uh, help all of us. So I appreciate mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, getting into our conversation today, and I think before we even get to like the topic, um, I always like to talk to people and ask them like, what kind of like inspired you to want to you know, focus on reentry and let alone the specific area that you are, you know, that you are an expert in? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. And um, I've actually done a little bit of introspection recently uh, because I had to write up my sort of tenure statement. And so I thought about uh, how I, how I sort of find myself in the place that I'm in right now. And so thinking back, I really can sort of um, sort of trace these roots pretty far back. Um, 
I was a little bit of a delinquent um, in my teenage years. Um, I have I was arrested several times, had some contact with the justice system, went went through juvenile courts, um, and I, I I suddenly stopped doing those kinds of things, and I stopped getting in trouble at a certain age, um, and then I went to college and. Um, that sort of resonated with me, those experiences, um, right? So, you know, why why did I have a hard time in school, you know, between the ages 13 and 17? Uh, why did I get in trouble? Why did I seem to, like, not learn things and um, just keep on making mistakes? And then why did I suddenly stop? Why at age 17 did, you know, some switch get flipped and I decided to you know, just start trying in school and wanted to go to college and my goals shifted. Um, and so I was naturally sort of interested in these sort of criminological questions. Um, and so I, I ended up taking a lot of classes in criminology. Um, and then, you know, toward the, you know, my junior year, I was like, well, I should probably major in criminology because I've already taken all these classes. Um, but I always knew that I didn't want to be sort of like law enforcement. Um, I didn't really want to apply to law school. Um, and so I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. Um, and so after college, I sort of fell into a few different social work jobs. Um, and these were pretty insightful for me because they introduced me to a population of people who were severely disadvantaged. I mean, um, I grew up relatively advantaged. And so um, all of this was new to me, right? Seeing the addiction and seeing the parents removed from homes, um, uh, seeing how, you know, incarceration um, tore apart families and caused more trauma and all this sort of um, downward cycle from there. Um, and so that got me interested in social work and, 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 and especially with regard to, you know, criminal justice populations. Um, and so I, I pursued a, a, an MSW um, and thought that that was going to be the career trajectory for me. Um, and at some point I realized um, I'm, I'm really interested in the question of what works and how can we improve things. And don't get me wrong, social work and social workers do amazing things every day. Um, but I was more interested in evaluation. Um, I wanted to know, like, let's get into these programs. Let's collect data. Let's see what's working and what's not working. How can we measure um, client outcomes and client success? Um, and so asking these kinds of questions um, made me realize that, a PhD is really what I probably should do because I wanted to work on these questions and in this realm, um, but really from the research angle. So um, that's when I started my PhD program, and it's really you know history from there um, because I you know I went to Temple and I, uh, I enjoyed it and um, did fairly well there. Um, and then specifically, how did I get on reentry and on this topic was. Um, as I said earlier, I'm, I'm interested in public criminology and uh, applying scholarship and, and research methods, techniques to practical questions that are of value in the everyday lives of people around us. Um, and so one of the things that I learned from going into courthouses in Philadelphia and speaking with public defenders, speaking with prosecutors, um, 
speaking with people who were on probation or parole um, was that they were, you know, sort of saddled with these debts that stemmed from um, them going through the criminal justice system and um, being hit with fines and fees and all these other things, and then they're not able to pay them off, and then they face an, a range of consequences um, down the road. Um, and so, you know, I, I sort of ran with that idea. I was like, this is, first of all, I didn't know about it. Um, and I was like, this is interesting. It's kind of shocking to me that people can be assessed this much in, you know, what we call financial sanctions. And the fact that it causes so many issues down the road, um, this is a very public policy relevant kind of question that I, that I want to jump into. Um, and so that's what I did. I wrote my dissertation on the topic. I've now, by now written maybe 15 to 20 papers on the topic. And I would say more than any other topic um, that I write about um, uh, is, is this topic. This is, this is what I spend most of my time on. So that was maybe a, a kind of a long answer to your question. How, how did I get into this sort of general area? No, I great answer. And I really like when people can take like, you know, their own personal experience and, um, you know, translate it or and transform it into something else of something bigger than them. And it seems like that's what you've done, like your experience as, you know, a young teen and, you know, the, tr the troubles and struggles that you were having there um, kind of sparked your interest into, like you said, those criminological questions. And then even just your experience as a social worker pushed you even further to wanting to work with, you know, the people that are incarcerated or that have experienced incarceration, because there is a lot of disruption there. Um, so I always really love those aspects. And I thank you for, you know, sharing that with us on here today. And Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, going off, you know, since you already brought up, you know, how you got into reentry and specifically how you got into legal financial obligations, I feel like it's only right for our audience if we could just take it back a little bit. I know this is probably like uh, a long time ago, of course, but if you could just give us the history, like, of, you know, legal financial obligations, like, just a little historical background on there just to give uh, mm -hmm. people some understanding there. Yeah, absolutely. So the term legal financial obligations is one that is common uh, in sociology and criminology, a number of other fields. We also use the terms financial sanctions and monetary sanctions. Um, and to my knowledge, those are, those are used pretty interchangeably. At least I use them interchangeably. Um, and what they encompass is the range of different kind of financial penalties that someone can face and likely do face when they're in contact with the justice system. So we can sort of work through them um, methodically. We can start with fines, right? Historically, fines have been around for a very, very long time, right? Before the U.S. was the U.S., there were fines in other countries. Um, and he, these are intended to be punishments, right? They are supposed to hold deterrence value. They're supposed to sting. Um, they're supposed to um, be retributive to an extent, right? Where you're punished for something that you did wrong. Um, and so they're, you know, they have a long history in criminal justice punishment, uh, both in this country and in other countries. Um, then you have restitution. Uh, restitution is... Um, money that is uh, goes from a person who is being convicted 
um, back to a victim, right? So if someone was arrested for burglarizing someone's home and they stole $1,000 worth of goods, um, then as part of their sentence, that they might be ordered to pay back that $1,000 to sort of make the victim whole again. Um, and so restitution similarly um, has a historical basis in this country, isn't new, um, and has been, you know, and is, is used throughout the world, uh, really. Um, and then besides those two, fines and restitution, we have a number of other sort of uh, kinds of financial sanctions that have a number of different names, but some people call them user fees, some people call them costs, surcharges. Um, they're all generally the same. Um, I, I generally tend to put them in one big bucket. There are some small differences between them, um, but not worth, I think, getting into at the moment. Um, and these are different. These are not new. Um, they've been around a few decades, but they have really been used a lot more, I would say, in the last decade or decade and a half. Um, and these are assessments or costs or whatever you want to call them that get tacked on to people's cases as they move through the criminal justice system. Um, and so they, they aren't intended to be you know, a deterrent or a retributive or, or restorative for a victim. Um, they're intended to raise money to get filtered back into the system um, so that the system can support itself. Um, we have this, you know, system of mass incarceration in this country that is so big um, that it is hard to finance, um, it, it especially, you know, in, in a country that is, you know, constantly trying to cut taxes. It costs a lot of money to run all these courts and jails and prisons. Um, and so one way that policymakers and lawmakers have figured out how to support the system is to implement all of these fees at all of these stages in the justice system that come from the people who are being convicted um, to essentially pay for or subsidize their own processing through the system. And so as such, I think the last sort of group that I just described, fees, costs, surcharges, are probably the most controversial because they don't have that inherent correctional philosophical rationale behind them, right? Where fines do, fines are, are theoretically a deterrent, they're retributive. Restitution is less controversial because it's money that goes back to a victim. Um, this, this other group is more about revenue generation to support a system that is very large. Um, so generally the criticism that you hear of legal financial obligations these days is most often targeted at that last category of user fees, costs, and surcharges. Okay, and so you've talked about a couple of types of financial obligations here. So I'm hearing restitution, um, fines, and then this last kind of group, I I don't know what to call it either, but I'm just gonna call it cost surcharges yeah. is what you were talking about there. Yeah, yeah, costs or fees are probably the most common way to describe it. Okay. And so you're talking about here about this controversy that exists. And I guess like a question that just made me that just came to my mind is, um, so would you say that the fees and the cost, um, the controversial category would be the most burdenful? I don't know, for that, people who are justice involved? Yes, that's a fantastic question. 
Um, and I think the short answer is yes. Um, so if you, if you, yeah, if you, if you look at someone's sort of criminal docket when they are sentenced, uh, say in Pennsylvania, um, there will be usually the last page, a list of fees that is about the length of a whole sheet of paper printed vertically using size 10 or 11 font. Um, so the total amounts of debt that people owe because of fees um, is usually much greater than their fines, which is, again, going back to the theoretical rationale of fines being a deterrent. Well, if, if, if a person's fees add up to a lot more than the fine, that's really problematic. Now this person is facing you know, a whole lot more punishment. Um, so to give you an example, um, the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU published a uh, pretty, pretty big report a few years ago, uh, actually back now in 2010, um, called Criminal Justice Debt, a Barrier to Reentry. And one of the, let's see, in, on page 15, I just pulled it up, they uh, show one of these docket sheets from Pennsylvania that I was talking about. Um, so I'll just read to you a few of what these fees are. Um, now, this is from Cambria County in Pennsylvania. There's an automation fee of $5. Sheriff's, sheriff's costs, $50. Police transportation fee, $100. Uh, CO slash drug fee, $200. Um, special administration fee, $200. Um, offender supervision fee, $345. Service charge, $230. Judgment fee, $24.50. State court costs, $12.30. That's just the first few. Um, there's a long list of these fees. Um, hard to figure out exactly what they're for, um, but they add up to a, a lot of money. Um, and so when you're talking about the burden, the overall burden um, on a person, on an individual, in this particular case, this person was convicted of a small amount of cocaine for personal use. Um, their punishment was six months of probation. Um, their fine was $500 and their fees added up to over $2,000, right? So this is giving you the sense of how impactful, how great these fees and costs are when they're you know, four times the amount of the fine that was imposed in this situation. Oh wow. Um I was I was listening to you list that off and I was like, wow, what what are half of those fees for? And mm -hmm. and yeah, I think that's just shocking because I can see how, you know, just thinking about like what reentry is and like all the different dimensions to it. And I know we haven't gotten this far in the conversation yet, but um how just that can be stifling or just impede the process because if you're having to pay all those fees for things yeah and 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 one of the scary things again we can get into this even further is you know it's scary off the bat to have to face this kind of a debt obligation especially if you're you know just released from incarceration and you know essentially have very few resources at your disposal but there are many places, even some nearby, um, where there are pretty serious consequences if you don't pay these back on time. Um, so, 
let's say most people who are released from incarceration uh, get released to probation or parole supervision. Um, in most places, one of the conditions that they have to meet to be on supervision is that they're paying their month their 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 fees and costs and fines back on a monthly basis. Um, and so, in some places, you know, some are more forgiving than others. But in some places, if you fall behind on paying this back, um, your probation officer, you know, in tandem with the you know presiding judge in the case, they can violate your case, and you can be punished. In some cases, you can be put back in jail for a short amount of time um, for not paying these back. So, um, yes, the the sort of total amounts of of these debts that people face is is shocking, but it's also shocking. Uh, the sort of range of consequences that flow down the road from having this. Yeah, and that was going to be one of my questions later on for you is uh, about those consequences. So I think I'm going to hold off there because I do have another question that uh, I want to ask you since we're we're still in the realm of like type of legal um, obligations. Uh -huh. So I just know like in like some of the things that I've seen or just like heard people talk about, like I know that there are other financial obligations that people may have like outside of these like um, I did hear you mention com um, supervision fees, um, child support. Um, what are, you know, what kind of impact do those type of fees or I don't even know if like the, if the word is like impact that I'm looking for, but um, where do, what role do those play, um, you know, in people who are involved in the justice system? Uh, they play a huge role. Um, I've done some work on child support uh, policy and the intersection with incarceration. Um, and in many states, uh, people who end up incarcerated, um, their child support payments, you know, their child support clock doesn't get stopped. Um, even though their capacity to, you know, go out and have a job and make money and pay off the child support isn't there, right? It's not there. You can't if you're incarcerated. Um, but in many places, the child support continues to accrue. Um, so if you're talking about child support accruing on a monthly basis for someone who, say, is incarcerated for three or four years and then released, they're facing a huge, huge burden once they're released. Um, and it's interesting that you bring up child support and supervision fees at the same time, because that kind of person is at a double disadvantage because not only will probation be coming after them to pay off those supervision fees that they're going to be assessed on a monthly basis, um, that person is also going to be hearing from child support, which is a separate office from probation in most places, um, but also one that is known to be quite punitive and use punitive levers, including working with the police to have someone arrested um, for non-payment of outstanding child support. Um, so those have a big impact, right? Um, a lot of people who are incarcerated are family members and have children and have child support cases. So um, when you add up, you know, the child support arrears, then the debt stemming from the fines and the fees in some places, including a few jails in Pennsylvania, it can cost you $80 a day to be in jail. Um, the warden can just sort of set that. Um, you, you're talking about leaving with uh, anywhere from, you know, I've, I've seen five, ten thousand, fifty thousand, one hundred thousand, 100,000, 100,000, 100,000, 
Um, if you're if you're looking at child support, I've 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 seen some cases where people leave incarceration with over two hundred thousand dollars in debt. Um, now that would be a balance that would be impossible for uh, you and I to pay off, right? Um, so imagine how that would affect or how what that would do to a person who's recently re released from incarceration and is dealing with you know all the struggles that are associated with that status in society and now facing that enormous kind of debt. Um, I, I imagine it's just overwhelming, isn't even, it doesn't come close to capturing um, what that situation must feel like. Yeah, and you know, when you said that of like, yeah, I can, I definitely can't pay that off of. So I imagine, like you said, also, it can be very difficult for people in these circumstances to also pay that off as well. And the fact that also that that's an expectation for them to pay that off is a little even more um, concerning, I feel like. Um, and so I guess, you know, moving forward in our conversation still in this area of who, who are we seeing that are having these financial obligations or like this criminal justice debt? Mm, good question. Um, I would say that well, sort of a little bit of a background. A lot of this criminal justice debt varies by location um, because a lot of these fees and fines and stuff vary based on depending what jurisdiction you happen to be in. Um, and so there are some places who might have a lot more fees than others. Um, but generally speaking, I would say that these days, just about everybody who goes through the criminal justice system is assessed fees. That's certainly the case in Pennsylvania. Something like 98% of the people who go who are arrested and go through the courts get assessed fees. Um, fines are, are, are much lower. I'm not sure what the percentage is, maybe half. Um, I could be wrong about that, but uh, I know it's quite a bit lower than fees. Um, and then restitution is also a bit lower. Um, and also only relevant in cases where there was a victim and there was a, you know, a financial loss of some kind. Um, but in terms of, you know, who is, is, is sort of facing these financial obligations and then who, who's facing, you know, the, the sort of debt obligations that um, can sort of exist for a long time or even grow over time. Um, it's definitely an issue that disproportionately impacts Black communities. Um, just given the sort of nature of what our criminal justice system looks like and how criminal justice has sort of unfolded um, in, in a, you know, frankly, a very you know, racist society um, means that these punishments, because that's essentially what they are, uh, financial punishments, are going to impact Black communities greater than other communities. Um, and we have some research um, demonstrating this point um, that it is sometimes um, people of color who are assessed more in these financial sanctions um, to begin with, although there's also some research saying it's about the same. But again, this all gets back to my point where um, this is done differently in different places. Um, there are some places that are more problematic than others. Um, but then when you think long-term, um, I've, I've done some research uh, with, with a colleague in Pennsylvania showing that these debt burdens uh, over time, they stick around. Um, and they especially stick around for people of color um, because 
Um, they, you know, you, you can look at, say, someone's who was uh, convicted and sentenced, say, in the year 2000, and then say you pulled up their records and looked at their case in 2010. How much money did they still owe um, based on that, you know, initial uh, conviction 10 years ago? Most people still owe debts. A majority of them still owe debts 10 years later. And that's especially true for people of color. Um, so it is, it is, it is, it's definitely, there's, there's a racial element and a racial component to this. Um, and when you think about it, it's honestly not that surprising too, um, because we know that people return to similar neighborhoods that they came from. And we know that neighborhoods in the U.S. and very much so in Philadelphia are segregated by race. Um, and that means that the opportunities for employment and, um, and, and other financial resources that could be used to pay off these debt burdens um, aren't, aren't, aren't quite as present in these communities compared to others. Um, so I think, I think that's sort of what you were getting at in your question. Um, it definitely is an issue that um, has, a, has a racial component and is not playing out equally across communities. Yes, that, yeah, that's what I was alluding to of um, kind of what are we seeing? And it seems like, like you're saying, like these fees are disproportionately impacting Black communities, Black neighborhoods, because there there's a plethora of research out there about people just returning to, you know, the environments that they came from um, before their incarceration. So I can definitely see like the relationship there of what you're talking about. Um, mm -hmm. And so I guess... Um, are there any other things that are like influ that influence, you know, people having debt or, you know, just these kind of like legal financial obligations that people need to be aware of or that we haven't covered yet? Oh, yeah, there's probably a number of things. Um, one of the things that I wanted to touch on at some point, but I guess now now would be a good time is this debt extends into families. So, for example, um, especially in the juvenile system, if a juvenile is uh, convicted um, of some, something and then gets assessed fines and fees, um, in many cases, it's the families stepping in and helping to pay off these debt burdens. Um, it's often mothers, it's often grandmothers. Um, and so what you see is, um, you know, the, the person who's removed from the situation essentially being punished, stepping in because they don't want to see their loved one in more trouble. So they come in and they pay um, and then they, they, you know, hope that their loved one stays away from the system. Um, so this, this is, you know, obviously the fines and the fees weren't intended for those other family members, but that's the sort of natural way that things unfold, right? Um, and so these, these are of particular interest, I think, because they, they touch on so many issues, including that they, they influence family dynamics. And we don't, we, don't, we don't tend to think about that when we're in our sort of criminal justice kind of paradigm and we're thinking about, you know, what does someone deserve as an individual who did something? You know, we don't, we don't think enough about these consequences on... Uh, very innocent people who just happen to be attached to this person. You know, and I think that's a great 
point um, because I think, especially when you're talking about, like you said, about juveniles or people who are involved at a very young age, it does kind of reflect on the family um, to kind of take that, you know, take on that obligation to pay those fees. And I think even when we get later into our conversation and we start talking directly on how, you know, debt and financial fees um, impede like the reentry process, I could see even their family conflict being something that happens as well. Um, exactly, exactly. And, and, you know, juveniles also have a harder time making money too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, right, they have a hard time finding jobs. And, um, and so like saddling them with all this debt and saying you have to pay it off, um, it's just very unlikely. Um, it's, it's not, it's not really going to happen like a, and so, you know, on the bright side, right, we've talked about a, a few negative aspects um, the last few minutes, but there are a number of states who are rethinking policy, especially in the juvenile realm. So New Jersey, actually, where I am right now, is an example uh, of that. Um, um, Governor Murphy has passed legislation that gets rid of a lot, uh, almost all, I think, uh, juvenile fines and fees. Um, And so um, I think a number of other states are doing similar things, too. So um, it's not all negative. Um, There's definitely, you know, some, some, some positive achievements being made in this context. Yeah, and I think that's great to know, too, because I think it can be just so easy to get stuck on, like, the negative things that are happening that we don't really see what positive changes we are trying to make. Um, so sh- salute to New Jersey for, you know, taking those efforts and the other states that are also taking efforts to do that. Um, one of the things I also wanted to ask you, because you talked about, you know, difficulties with juveniles of, like, just making money. Um I just overall, like with justice involved populations, why is it so difficult for them to pay these fees? Um, like, does is that make does that question make sense? Sure, it does. Sure, sure. Well, I mean, look, it's it's hard for someone with a criminal record to get legitimate employment um, because you know many places don't have these ban the box laws in place, um, and so they're allowed to ask about criminal history. Um, and then employers, you know, are, are they, they discriminate, um, they, they, you know, their, their perspective is why would I hire someone with this criminal record when I can hire this person over here without a criminal record? Um, and then even in places that do have, you know, ban the box policies on the applications, um, they're still allowed to find out about the person's record just at a later interview. And so they can still choose to, uh, turn someone away based on that conviction. Um, and so it's very hard for someone with uh, an arrest history um, to find gainful employment, right? And if you if you can't find employment, um, how are you going to even begin thinking about paying back these debt burdens um, back to the state, back to probation um, and parole? And on top of that, we have uh, pretty strong evidence that there's a sort of interaction between having a record and being black. Um, so, you know, Diva Pager did that famous study where she, you know, uh, created uh, job applications, um, fake job applications, and had them sent out to, you know, lots and lots and lots of businesses. Um, they varied or manipulated the demographics on the applications, right? So, black, white, Asian, et cetera. 
Um, and then they varied whether the person had a record or not. Um, and as they suspected, they found that the people who had a criminal record were much less likely to get a call back uh, about that job. But even more than that penalty was just being black. Um, in the people who, you know, you know, these were obviously fictitious uh, applications, but the, the applications that had black on them were less likely to get called back than the applications that had white on them and a criminal record. Um, and so what, what we know now is that there are just several penalties that people face when they enter the job market with a criminal record. And if you are uh, a person of color with a criminal record, that's just enhanced. It's just even that much more difficult. Um, and so when you're talking about the criminal justice system and the demographic makeup of it, you know, it being, uh, you know, very um, you know, disproportionately uh, African-American and Hispanic, um, this, is, this is something that is making it, you know, difficult down the road for many reasons, right, in terms of employment and all these other things. So overall, we have, you got general difficulties, and then you have these, a different layer of difficulties that for paying if based off race um, and different things like that. So when you have people who are, and this is going back to kind of what you mentioned earlier of like, so I'm not able to pay these fees. Um, I'm not able to make these payments. There's some type of consequences for this. What are mm -hmm. those are like, and are there different layers to what these consequences may look like? Uh, yes, yes, for sure. Right, so we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the child support system separate from the probation and parole system, right? So if you are on probation or parole, if you're released from prison, um, you will meet with your probation or parole officer, you know, every so often, depending on what sort of risk category they put you in, you know, medium, high, low. Um, and as I said earlier, as part of your conditions of supervision, meaning we are letting you out of prison on probation or parole on the condition that you do these things. One of those is paying back these fines and fees. And um, just like I said, how the fines and fees vary by jurisdiction, by different places, often at the county level, um, the policies governing what to do about non-payments also varies. Right, so there's there's many places, you know, Philadelphia is one of them, where if you're released from incarceration, you're on probation or parole, and you have these fees and you're not paying them back, you're not going to get violated for it. Probation is not going to seek out uh, a judge and say, hey, let's let's get this person arrested and violated and reincarcerated because they're not paying us back. Philadelphia doesn't do that. Um, by comparison, there are other places. Uh, maybe in far away Pennsylvania that that do that that will say okay well you're you missed these three months payments in a row um, we are going to violate your probation and you're going to go back in front of a judge where he's going to figure out he or she's going to figure out what the you know further consequences may be including as severe as jail time um, and so you know here you're talking about again we're talking about a criminal justice population that isn't known for being, you know, socioeconomically advantaged, um, facing real, you know, liberty kinds of consequences, um, 
for not being able to pay back these financial obligations, you know, stemming from their cases from a long, long, long time ago. Um, and so on the other sort of side is the, is the child support, which um, I say, as I said, is a different system uh, altogether front then probation and parole. Um, but again, um, can be just as punitive and can work with police departments um, to have people arrested for not paying back uh, the child support installments, right? Say like on a monthly basis or something like that. Um, and so those people are, are sort of facing uh, the state coming at them from two angles, right? Saying, you know, each side saying, you have to pay us, you have to pay us, you have to pay us. Um, so the sort of pressure to, you know, find uh, find ways to pay these things off is is big, right? Especially when people are contacting you on a monthly basis about these outstanding amounts. Right. And so I'm also, so I'm hearing like consequences just like from the structural places that these people may be involved in. Um, and child support is also playing a role into there's consequences from there because that's just a separate office in general that you're, you know, having to deal with. Are there any other like consequences? Like, and I also like, I guess what I was thinking too, while you were talking is just about, um, you know, just opportunities that people miss out on because of debt are do, mm. does this group miss out on opportunities because of the debt? Um, like, is that something? Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. So I, I see, I see what your question is getting at too, because um, I, I was sort of narrowly focusing on the criminal justice related consequences, right? Those being violations and arrests and reincarceration. Um, but you're right. There are a range of other consequences and missed opportunities that stem from debt obligations. Um, some of them are if you have a lot of debt, um, you won't be able to apply for a credit card, or you will, and you'll get rejected. Um, you will have a hard time um, getting a loan for anything um, because you have a lot of this debt. It's visible. People know about it. Um, so sort of like financially securing yourself and putting yourself in a position to, you know, you know take on responsibilities and, and, and try to better yourself and use these institutions and society to your advantage um, may not be there, may be diminished uh, because you still have this debt um, on your record. Um, and then more fundamentally, you know, debt has um, sort of intersections with you know, fundamental civic rights, um, right? Like we, we have uh, an issue of felony disenfranchisement in this country, um, right? Just last week, I saw a new report um, put out by the sentencing project that Chris Hugan and colleagues uh, did showing the number of people who are disenfranchised across the country and by state um, and the racial element there, right? I, I, I picked up one statistic about how more than one in 10 people in a number of states, a lot of them Southern, more than one in 10 black adults are disenfranchised from voting. Um, and so criminal justice debt is, is one of those things that influences one's ability to vote in certain places. Again, back to my point about how a lot of this varies by jurisdiction. Um, maybe you remember a few years back um, in Florida, there were, there's, there's, uh, that's initially when this controversy began. Um, people with criminal justice debts uh, were, were barred from voting. 
Um, and so that was that was the state's way of sort of keeping people, um, you know, away from the you know levers of democracy. Right? They're saying, sure, you know, if you have a criminal record, you can you can vote. We'll 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 we'll, we'll reenfranchise you. But if you owe debts related to fines, fees, or anything else, you can't vote. Um, and so, you know, at the end of the day. Sure, they're saying people can vote, uh, people who have criminal records, um, but uh, in in practice, what they're doing is they're they're just continuing to disenfranchise people um, based based on having these debts. So, um, in these sort of day to day ways, like not being able to apply for a credit card or financing something, not being able to buy a car, um, debt matters. And then in these more fundamental ways, like you know. Uh, how much do you feel like you are a part of society and you, you can be civically engaged? Debt also has impacts there as well. Yeah, and I think I think both lenses are very important because what I'm hearing from you is, yes, you have these very structural, structural um, barriers that also, when we're thinking back to the context of reentry, um, can interfere with reentry. If just like... Uh, I have to pay these fees in order to even, you know, I have to, I have to abide by these rules anyways, because this is what the probation and parole, these are the requirements. So I have to pay the fees in order to see the parole officer. And if I don't do that, that's a violation. But even just like you said, day to day life, if I just need to be able to sustain or maintain some type of livelihood, um, if I have debt, I can't even do that is what it sounds like. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, we have spoken to people who are on probation and are facing these monthly payments that they have to pay, and they can't. And there are people who have told me, hey, look, I, I sometimes don't eat dinner at night. I'll just drink a lot of water and go to sleep um, because I don't have the money um, to pay off you know, these debts to buy dinner and to support my kids something's got to give. And so there are some people who just, you know, forego basic, you know, life necessities like food um, because they, they feel that um, the sort of risk of not being able to pay back these, these monies to the state um, is so great. You know, the consequences are so great, right. That like they, they would rather miss out on food on certain days, as sad as that sounds. Yeah, and that it's a very sad case, but I think, and it also leads to like my next question because I I saw and um you recently did an article, um and the title of the article is a great question, and I think like where what we've been talking about um is why I'm bringing that question up of is there like based off of all the stuff that we've just talked about these consequences and the challenges of just like paying for debt, is there a link between you know debt and recidivism and reentry. Mm, great question. Um, yeah, so I did, that was a sort of review piece. Um, I, I did introduce some data of my own in there as well, but my main goal in that piece was to review all of the studies that have looked at recidivism and debt and the relationship between the two. Um, and I would say overall that the findings are mixed. There are some studies showing a clear link there. There are some studies showing no link. Um, and that doesn't necessarily surprise me um, because 
as I mentioned earlier, the debt burdens vary based on where you are and what those policies are in the jurisdiction you happen to find yourself in. Uh, and then the policies for non-payment vary as well, right? So we might be seeing these links um, dependent on that kind of like geographical context um, that you know is so variable across the country. Um, but I would definitely say that um, it makes sense that there is a link there, right? Um, there's a number of theoretical perspectives in criminology that would suggest that um, if you, you know, if you owe a lot of money and you don't have it, that's a stressor. It's a strain from general strain theory perspective um, that would predict that someone would go out and do something um, to try to raise money in, a, in order to, you know, be able to pay off these things. Um, and there was a report that was published, I think, out of Kentucky or Louisiana, I'm not sure off, off the top of my head, um, where they interviewed uh, and surveyed a number of juveniles. Um, and I can't remember the exact statistic off the top of my head, but it was pretty high. It was something like something like 20% or so of respondents in their samples said, um, yes, I stole drugs when I was on probation or parole so that I could pay off my probation or parole officer because I didn't want them to get me in trouble for non-payment. So that's a sort of concrete example of like how debt burdens would engender further criminal, you know, criminal behavior, um, you know, putting that person at risk of, you know, possibly arrest and um, losing their liberty for another time. Um, so I would say that the link is there. It's logical to me that there would be this link between owing debt um, and further offending. Um, but uh, it's not perfectly well spelled out in the research. I think there's a certain um, we there's a certain ways we need to go both theoretically and empirically before we can really say we understand this relationship um, because I think it's more complicated than you know everybody who has debt who's released from prison um, and ends up reoffending because of it. Right. It, it, it makes a lot more sense that this debt matters for specific subpopulations. Right. People who are struggling, who are having a hard time finding work, um, people who are low on family instrumental support, um, people who are returning to segregated neighborhoods with very few opportunities uh, or people who are living in jurisdictions where um, the punishments are so severe for non-payment that, hey, this person's motivated to go out and sell drugs and then use it to pay off um, because they don't want to get violated and sent back to jail. So I think that the relationship is complicated, um, but I believe there is a connection between debt and re recidivism or, or reoffending. Um, we just haven't quite yet uh, figured it out perfectly. Um, uh, if I could make a short plug, I, I have a study that is... Uh, about to start right now that I'm doing with um, Hyatt at Drexel University and, and a few other people. Um, and we're, we're addressing this question head on, um, but just in a different kind of way. Um, so what we're doing is we have received funding from a philanthropic organization named Arnold Ventures. And what we're doing is uh, moving forward, starting pretty soon and moving forward, 
um, we are seeing what fee elimination, what the impact of fee elimination is on people's sort of criminal and recidivistic outcomes. So what I mean by that is um, we are actually going into the court systems and we are paying off people's fees. We are using this money from this grant um, to pay off people's court fees. Uh, and then we'll follow them over time, three or four years. Um, we'll, 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 we'll interview some of them, we'll give them surveys, and then we'll collect data um, to see, you know, did this reduce their recidivism? Did the people who had um, these court fees pay off, did they do better than, you know, other people who didn't have their court fees paid off? Um, so as I mentioned earlier, um, you know, I, I think the, the the theory and the methods aren't aren't currently where they need to be to get at this question really well. Um, which is one of the reasons I'm very excited about this project is this is a strong design that will really be able to test uh, again from an inverse kind of way. Um, does relieving these fee burdens, you know, improve recidivism outcomes? Yeah, I think I, I think I agree with you of like logically to me it makes sense. Um, especially like all that I've learned today. I'm like, okay, yeah, I I, I think that makes sense to me. Or like um mm -hmm. I could see how, you know, debt, but like you said, the research isn't fully there to um support what we're I guess the link yet or it's a very complicated relationship. And I, I think the project that you are working on or will be working on will be great and I and I can't wait to see the outcome results of that just to see uh, you know is this if it works um is this something that we should be doing or implementing in other places yeah absolutely um as far as I know the we're I think the second study to be done on this topic um mm -hmm. there was one previously done um by some people, I think in uh, I think Oklahoma, um, and uh, they published the findings in the uh, American Sociological Review. Um, ours will be a little bit different from theirs, um, but yeah, it's it's definitely a, an exciting area that is ripe for for lots and lots of research. But yeah, I would I would totally agree with you. It's logical to me that there is a connection between debt uh, and recidivism. Um, I would just argue that I think I think ultimately the relationship is just a little bit more complicated where it's, you know, the, the question, I think the better question is um, uh, for whom does debt lead to recidivism, right? For which kinds of populations or what are these sort of like overlapping challenges or adversities that lead people who have debt um, to ultimately reoffend? Um, and and that's that's what people are you know working on right now and trying to trying to iron out with data. Yeah, and I think I think that's great. And so I guess you know I feel like we've talked the uh, at least it, maybe it hasn't been like a a, a very uh, what is it what's the word um, direct question, but I feel like based off our conversation people are able to kind of gauge like why debt is so important, um, at least mm -hmm. at an individual aspect. Um, but could you talk to us or just ex give us briefly or expand for us about why is this a concern for just society in general? Or like, why are we talking about this? Um, or I guess, what is the impact for on this 
for overall society. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, I've always said that all of society should be concerned with reentry, right? Reentry is a public safety issue. The public should be invested in people being successful on reentry, right? And so the way to do that, we know, are to sort of invest in certain things like programs that strengthen families, programs that ad address addictions and other mental health concerns, um, programs that try to get people um, enrolled in education programs or certain employment programs. Um, we know this, and there are lots of policy reasons why we should implement these things that make all of us as a society better off. We're, we're safer, and we're spending less money on reincarcerating people. Um, so I've, I've always said that, look, it, it doesn't even matter which, which political background you come from. Um, everybody should be concerned with reentry as an issue. It's important whether you're interested in it for social justice reasons, whether you're interested in it for policy reasons, whether you're interested in it um, for purely financial or fiscal reasons, um, it should be an issue that matters to the public. And, and you know what, I think we're making improvements in this realm, right? Like criminal justice reform is now a bipartisan issue. Um, so again, we might come to the table from, you know, from different angles and with different motivations, um, but it seems like people are realizing more and more now that criminal justice and reentry, these are issues that everyone really should be concerned about. Um, the thing that I would add to your answer is, uh, add to my answer, excuse me, is that um, this is also a racial justice issue that we're continuing to struggle with, right? So, you know, we talked a little bit about the, the individual impacts of owing all this debt and the consequences on your life in terms of you know, voting or getting rearrested or not being able to apply for a home or something like that. Um, but you could also think about debt at other levels of society. You could think about how, you know, if you looked at who owes criminal debt and who doesn't, I bet you would see large differences across neighborhoods, right? Across neighborhoods uh, in places that are still very segregated by neighborhood, right? So if you take like, Philadelphia, again, I live closest to Philly. Philadelphia or Baltimore um, being two you know, similar kind of cities that are highly segregated by race. Um, I imagine you would see lots of people or lots of neighborhoods with lots of money and debt um, in certain places. And then you know, white neighborhoods not facing much criminal justice debt at all. I'm, I'm almost certain that would be a general pattern. Um, and so we need to continually ask ourselves, like, what are the bigger level impacts? Like, how are these policies that are being applied to individuals um, ultimately also affecting neighborhoods and whole communities and shaping these communities where, you know, the, the, the population of residents who reside in these places um, are, are, are in one way de defined by, as debtors. Um, this is... This is an uncomfortable thing, especially when you think about how it un unfolds across race. Um, and so for people who are concerned with sort of the social and racial justice aspect of these issues, um, I think this is, you know, just as critical of a, of a topic in criminal justice, uh, really, as, as any other one. Yeah, and I, I agree with that. And so 
thinking about that and, you know, the different levels to how we generally, uh, when we offer recommendations like policy, practice, advocacy, research, um, whatever other layers people want to add in there, how, what would you suppose needs to be done to help us move forward or, uh, yeah, in those areas? Yeah, so it's a great question. Um, and again, I, I like to think about some of these issues from like a solution focused kind of lens. And so I've thought about these things before and there's really a number of things you can do at different levels to try to start tackling these issues. Um, I'll start with the most basic things that I think everywhere needs to do. Um, every jurisdiction needs to create what we have called in one of our articles, an LFO index. Um, and what, what that is, is in its accounting of all of the fines and fees, the universe of fines, fees, costs, restitution, whatever, um, how much they are, who assesses them, right? Because it could be the police, it could be the courts, it could be probation, it could be the jail. Who assesses them? How much are they for? How long have they been around, right? So if we did that in Philadelphia right now, like we would have this massive list of fines and fees that even people in the system they wouldn't know about. There would be lots of people who work in the system right now, say in the courts, who would be unfamiliar with a lot of the fees and costs that get assessed to people. That's because of the just the sheer number of LFOs in these cases. Um, so I think before we can start talking about reform and how to scale the system back, we need to have a really good understanding of the problem that we're dealing with. Uh, and you do that through creating these LFO indexes and just you know a detailed picture of the, the issue that you're dealing with. So we're doing that locally. Um, and I think that you know really all jurisdictions need to sort of take on this task. Um, so that would be the first thing. Um, the second thing I would say is we don't take into account ability to pay nearly enough, right? So when, when judges assess fines in cases, they really are supposed to be considering someone's ability to pay um, and then sort of calibrating the, the amount of the fine to that person's ability to pay. And usually ability to pay is determined based on factors like, is the person employed? Um, have they been employed a long time? Um, what are their other obligations? Do they have children to support? Do they have medical or health issues, et cetera? Um, so that you can come up with a fair amount that can be assessed to the person um, so that they can reasonably pay it off, right? That seems fair, rational. Um, that doesn't seem to be happening a lot in many cases. Instead, you see cases moving through systems where they just tack on a fine based on whatever the you know, charge they're facing is. Um, and there's really you know, little consideration for the person's ability to pay. Um, I think that could be changed. I think we could create a fairer system, a more equitable system, um, if, we are, if we are adjusting these fines and fees um, according to how much um, this person can afford, right? So if you take two people, one goes through the system, is a millionaire, another goes through the system, is basically homeless, and you slap them both with a $100 fee or fine or whatever, that's not going to make a difference in the first person's life. And it's going to totally throw off the second person's life, right? And so when you're thinking about the fundamental reasons why we have a criminal justice system in the first place, right? We care about deterrence. We care about retribution. 
we care about incapacitation, things like that. Um, we're not really achieving much in the first situation with the rich person. And we're achieving, we're not achieving much in the second situation either because um, it, we're punishing the person so much that we can't even say retribution is relevant, right? So like, I think we're doing a disservice to our own criminal justice system um, when we don't consider uh, ability to pay. Um, so that would be the other thing. Um, and then I think uh, we need to consider fee elimination or fee abolition a lot more than we currently are. Um, as I said, New Jersey is sort of leading in one respect because we've been abolishing fees, especially in the, ju in the juvenile system. Uh, and I'm optimistic that we'll be continuing to abolish some fees um, in the adult system as well. Uh, I think more and more states are going to need to uh, look into this because really it is the fees and the costs that are much less justifiable than say fines and restitution, right? I don't think anyone really, or not many people are arguing that we should get rid of restitution, right? Because then we're just sort of forgetting about victims. Um, and then I'd say most people aren't arguing to get rid of fines. They might be arguing about how to apply fines differently or in a better way or in a fairer way. Uh, but I think a lot of people would say, hey, maybe we shouldn't get rid of the fine wholesale because if we do, then we're sort of throwing out one of the tools in our toolkit. Does that mean we're going to rely more on incarceration instead, which is you know even worse than being the recipient of a fine? So um, that's another thing um, to sort of think about. Um, and I think fundamentally, I, maybe this is the last point I'd, I'd, I'd make on what to do about it. Society needs to think about where are we going to get the money to pay for the criminal justice system if we start getting rid of fees and costs? Um, because we have this system, right? Some people have called it an offender-funded system where this money is being charged to people who go through it and then the system is collecting it and using it to pay for you know, core operations, for salaries, for infrastructure, for buildings. Well, if we start abolishing the fees and costs, that's all great, and that means that people's lives improve because they don't have this debt, or at least not much of it, as much of it. Um, but how is the system going to pay for itself? Um, and the reason this is such an important question to ask is the money has to come from somewhere. So if it's not from the person who's going through the system, where does it come from? Does it come from taxes? Are we going to raise taxes so that we can pay for the criminal justice system? Um, once we've abolished fees, I'd be for that. I, I think that's, I think that the state, I think as taxpayers, we should, our tax, our tax dollars should go toward funding those kinds of things. Um, but I think a lot of people would resist that because um, we have, you know, so many people who are constantly trying to re reduce and minimize taxes in this country. So I think that's going to be the really sticky issue moving forward is how, how are we going to fund things? now? Someone could come along and say, well, here's, here's the answer. Let's just scale the system back. Let's begin to dismantle mass incarceration. Let's make way fewer arrests. Let's depopulate our jails and prisons. And in this way, um, we don't need all of this funding. We don't need, we don't need it from fees and we don't need it from, uh, from taxpayers um, because the system is now much smaller. Um, I think that's a great route. And I think that is something that ideally we should pursue. Uh, of course, that's not going to happen overnight, right? That's a very sort of long-term goal. 
um, but one that one that we should keep in mind. Yeah, and I think all of those were were great, actually. Um, just things that I didn't even know to consider. So, and these are things that obviously I would need to learn more about too. But and I'm hoping the audience like really takes something from you know the suggestions, the recommendations that were provided. Um, and just the different insights that we could have that could help us move forward. And I think one of the questions when you were talking about um, the eliminating fees is I didn't even think about the fact of like, where would we get the money from? So I think that's a good question to kind of ponder on and for people to consider um, about when we are trying to make transitions or just move forward in this area. Yeah, it it, it is a good question because um you know, we like to be like solution oriented. And so like, you know, we can all agree, even people who work for some of these agencies at the state level, that there are these harms, these consequences that are bad, that are associated with LFOs. The real tough question is like, how do we fix it, right? These fees and these costs and these fines are entrenched. They've been here for, you know, for a while and they're sort of deeply in the system and they have a deep function um, which is to sort of pay for itself. Um, you know, dismantling that system is is a very, very, very big task. And um, I think a lot of people would be for it, but they just need to know um, what's the alternative? How, how are we going to sort of reconceptualize our system and our funding streams so that we can, you know, minimize the, the, the debt burdens on these individuals coming out um, of uh, either jail or prison? Yeah, I agree. Um, something to definitely think about, audience. If you if you have any insights, we'll definitely be trying to have this conversation on our uh, social media platform. So we just look forward to you know hearing what others have to say and just ideas. Um, but I guess before we get off of here, Doctor Link, uh, I want to ask you like because I know like we've we've covered a lot, we've talked about a lot. Um, I feel like people are really going to get a lot of information from this. Um, but if there was one thing that you wanted the audience to take from our conversation today, what would that be? I guess it would be that <clears throat> this sort of going back to one of your questions is that I'm concerned about these issues because I've been in this space for a number of years and have worked with people and I've seen the consequences that having financial obligations has on their lives and their families. <clears throat> um, but you don't need to have that background to be concerned about these issues. Um, these are societal policy relevant issues that affect everybody. Um, all of society should be interested in and invested in uh, addressing some of the issues in criminal justice and trying to improve reentry outcomes. Um, because as, as I said earlier, right, lower recidivism benefits everybody. It benefits everybody in terms of safety outcomes. It benefits everybody in terms of uh, paying less money in taxes toward uh, incarceration and these other sort of, you know, needless things in society. Um, needless meaning um, shouldn't be so so large. <clears throat> um, and so I think I think you know. Efforts like what you're doing with this podcast um, and when researchers and scholars, you know, broaden their scope and talk to policymakers and to the public, um, I think that's critically important. And I think we need to continue um, to try to con convince people that, like, this is an issue that affects everyone. 
um, and we all should be sort of on the same page here, um, regardless of our, our backgrounds or our political perspectives. Yeah, I think that's a great, like, that's a great, um, like, overview or, you know, idea for the audience to have, um, because I do think reentry is so important and, um, and it's beneficial to all of us to kind of help the people that are struggling going through this process. So I do think that is a great way to, you know, kind of end our conversation today. And um, I want to say, Dr. Link, thank you for, you know, coming on and, you know, just being open and sharing your experience and, um, you know, sharing your expertise on the topic. Um, I will say that I've learned a lot um, just about things that I didn't know and just more things to go read about. And I certainly hope that our audience was able to take something from this conversation today. So um, I'm really thankful. More Life is also just really thankful. <laughs> well, thank you so much for the invitation. Um, I had a great time and I've said this before, but I think you're doing a really great thing. I follow your podcast and um, yeah, good, good luck uh, both with the future of the podcast and with the future of your doctoral program. And uh, I'm I'm sure we'll be you know following each other and and crossing paths down the road at some point. Uh, I guess the last thing I would say is go Phillies. <laughs> um, I love that. I love that. Um, yes. Yeah, so uh, we definitely will. And I will say, audience, if you are interested in learning more about Dr. Link and his work that he does, I will make sure that I list um, all social media that he has provided in the description box below in any other additional information, as well as if you're just interested in learning more about um, the content of what he is talking about, I will try to provide some resources there for you as well. Um, but we thank you all for listening today. And as always, if you enjoyed the episode, just follow us on Instagram and more life, the reentry podcast. And thank you. Uh-huh.